0: Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I have multiple guests today. I'm so excited to be doing this podcast. I've garnered as many members of the Society of Pain and Palliative Care Pharmacists who presented at Pain Week on this conference call here so that we could record how we thought the sessions that we presented at Pain Week went and where we think we're going to go next with this. So I've got a lot to slog through here. Let's see, where shall we start? Let's start with um, the session that Jessica Geiger-Hayes and Alex McPherson and I did. It was one of the very early sessions, literally and figuratively, uh, where we did pain terminology, knowing the difference makes a difference. So Jessica Geiger-Hayes, uh, who is a PharmD but also a Master of Science from our program, is a palliative care pharmacist at Ohio Health, and Alex McPherson is a palliative care pharmacist at Washington Hospital Center, MedStar in Washington, D.C. So Alex and Jessica, what did you think about that session?
1: So this is, a, this is Alex, by the way, but this is a session that is eternally at 7 a.m., and each year I'm always pretty surprised by how many participants show up eager and ready to play Jeopardy. That is the format of our pain terminology uh, session. The Amazon gift cards might have something to do with it, but it is always well attended, and this year
2: was certainly no different, so a lot of fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Jessica, what were some of the, the categories we had? Do you recall?
2: Um, so I remember uh, we had pharmacotherapy. We had equianalgesic dosing, which was fun because it was it was great fun to watch people try to do math at seven a.m. <laughs> Nobody wanted to volunteer for those because uh, it was math at seven a.m. Um, actually, the five hundred point ones. The five hundred. It's true. Um, and <laughs> I remember monitoring
0: I, I and. I found
1: an Amazon part.
0: <laughs> yeah. what was that? Is it
1: right, that's right.
0: Totally. We gave a five dollar Amazon gift card. And I'm convinced that people would kill their mother for a five dollar Amazon card. I think I had people that were answering more than one question. I
2: probably should have
0: better done a better job of making sure we didn't have repeat answers. Yeah. Although I didn't notice a lot of takers for that neuroanatomy physiology column. <laughs> no that was the last one to go. Not, I think that would have been a $10 Amazon card. <laughs> but that was a lot of fun, and I thought it really set the tone for the meeting. And we learned a couple of years ago to make sure to remind Payne we don't post the handout because some of our little kittens would cheat, wouldn't they? So we didn't let them do that this year. So It was while a we're highly sought-after
2: two- handout. It was a highly sought-after handout when we were done. <laughs> I had so many people come up yeah. to me in the hallway or at other sessions saying, where's the handout? I want the handout.
0: Did they yeah. post it yet? Well, I'm sure they could do it after, it's just not before. But while I'm on Jessica and Alex, why don't you talk a little bit about the pain therapeutics lecture that you gave? That was a couple of hours long. That was There were a lot of people there.
2: We did have yeah. a lot of people. This is Jessica again. Alex and I yes. to tag team that one, and it was really fun. Um, a lot the of guest content. appearance by Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of content to cover in two hours, but it was also very well attended. There were so many people, and it was close to after, The lunch break, and so I was very happy that everyone also stayed awake. Mm. It's hard to compete with the free lunch or the food coma. Yeah, Um, too. I think there were a lot of great questions that came out of that one. They liked The participants liked the guideline review and how, um, also how deep of a dive Alex took into the different options we had to help remind people that we're not just up here saying opioids are for everyone. We're talking about everything that we can do to appropriately manage people's pain.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, we
1: even incorporated a, a very brief discussion on some of the non-pharmacologic interventions, which I think people these days, especially amidst the opioid crisis, have a lot of interest in. So although we didn't spend a whole lot of time on that section, I think it was one that garnered some
0: questions. Mm I'm always um, afraid when I give that kind of a lecture that I might be too basic and be boring people, but um, I did not think that was the case at all with this. I thought you you guys were very thorough in going over all the therapeutic classes, and sometimes I personally enjoy getting back to basics and making sure that what I think I know I still do know and that I'm correct, and it's the current thinking. So I thought you guys did a terrific job on that one. So let's switch to Laura Meyer-Yunko, who is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois-Chicago College of Pharmacy. I think Laura wins the prize for the snappiest titles, although Feudin certainly has given her a run for her money. So Laura, tell us about life hacks to teach chronic pain patients.
3: Okay, so I developed the talk after I uh, spent a good portion of a year reading through self-help books to teach patients with pain self-management strategies. Because mm-hmm. I, I work in Rockford, Illinois, and so this is an area where we don't really have access to psycho uh, psycho uh, psychologists and, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of my watered-down approach to CBT and ac- acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and I think it, it went better than I expected. I was expected to... Um, you know, to have a psychologist in the audience kind of raise their hand and school me <laughs> <laughs> on their subject area. Um, but I, I think it was, uh, I think it went pretty well. And I think even just preparing it myself really helped me um, garner more skills in this area. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I work with geriatric patients, and we're pulling awareness therapies, you know, opioids are out. And, And then, you know, says, and this type of thing because of their chronic comorbidities. And they're kind of frustrated. They're frustrated Mm -hmm. about their pain control. So I I kind of felt helpless. So I thought that by teaching myself self-management strategies, I could empower patients to have some level of control over their own pain Mm -hmm. Um, and to recognize how negative self-talk, those negative comments we make to ourselves all day long Mm -hmm. can really worsen the pain experience. Mm. What's Um, your
0: favorite hack that you talked about?
3: Well, my favorite hack is probably the one that's probably the most obnoxious, and it was the, it's called the stop technique. So uh-huh. when you're spiraling out of control and negative thoughts, you just slam your hands on your lap or the table and just yell stop. Uh-huh. So I, I think that might not be something most patients will like to do, at least in public,
0: uh-huh. uh, but I
3: thought that one was, was funny. Because, I mean, that it really doesn't cool. work.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. Now, I like your other topic, too, navigating the OTC aisle, what a pain in the aspirin. Man, I wish I would thought of that title. So tell us about that.
3: Okay, so this also came from uh, working with older adult patients again, and they're always really sneaky about their over-the-counter use. A lot of times they're not telling me about it, but after, you know, I asked the question 5,000 ways, or look in their little a bag on their other walker, I, I I recognize that they are taking these medications,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and um, there's so many brand extensions out there that we really can't talk to our patients in terms of brand names. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, there's three different Excedrin products, two of the same ingredients, different instructions. The third doesn't contain aspirin at all. So mm-hmm. it really was a session to increase awareness of really what's out there. It, it is kind of a jungle. Um, like, I like the, the topical product, the trolamine 10%. Mm-hmm. But I can't call it just cream because cream makes a lot of topical products. Sure. One called cream with lidocaine, mm-hmm. but you would think that means trolemine with lidocaine, but it doesn't it have would. any trolamine at all.
0: <laughs> Got to <laughs> so love a line extension.
3: <laughs> yeah. And then also to kind of go through, you know, what's the deal with these manufacturers coming out with these, rapid release, you know, um, Tylenol formulations, or the solubilized ibuprofen, are they really fast-acting? And if they are, what's the deal with that? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, I use Advil uh, film-coated tablets because, from what I found, they're the fastest acting, and then literature suggests that in in terms of acute pain, the faster they work, the better all-over efficacy they may have, and the less total analgesic
0: use you may use,
4: Mm -hmm. which is
3: someone working in geriatrics, I like less is more for sure.
0: Yeah, so, and I was, I was just talking to a physician about an hour ago, and he said, have you seen the literature coming out that alternating ibuprofen with acetaminophen actually works better than oxycodone 5 milligrams for certain types of pain? So I do think people are increasingly interested in the OTCs. Exactly. Yeah, well, good job, and awesome titles. <laughs> Let's see, where should we go next? Let's go to Dr. Feuden. So I asked Dr. Feuden, how shall I introduce you? And we were all a little stumped. So somebody suggested that he is in the running with the beer man to be the most interesting man in the world. So Dr. (laughs) Feuden, if anything you want to share about uh, your background or what you do aside from wearing an adorable bow tie, you gave like 5,000 talks at Pain Week, good grief. And to make it even more complicated, half of them, Dr. Feuden, did with Dr. Gooden. So talk to us about this manage pain and minimize misuse abuse. How about abuse to turn opioids to enhance patient quality of life? Are they really worth the money?
4: Uh, so that that yeah, that was a, uh, a a fun program. Uh, it was a company sponsored early uh, program, and again, it seven o'clock, the room was full. That was yeah. it, it was crazy. So mm-hmm. I think that um, you know the abuse deterrent information is a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the problem is nobody wants to pay for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. well they're
4: expensive, and insurance doesn't cover them. Insurance doesn't cover all. Them. I mean, some insurance do cover, some states require um, that, that, um, that HHS covers one abuse deterrent formulation or two abuse of term formulations. But doctors don't prescribe that. You know, my, my experience, and this is honest to God true, I, I've given lectures where we've had uh, some lay folks in the audience, including substance abusers. Mm-hmm. And this is not uh, true. Like, if, if you take a room full of physicians, and pharmacists too, mm-hmm. um, and put them on one room and say, um, okay, can you tell me what the differences are between these various formulations? Like, how, well, what's the difference? And in one way, that abuse the term formulation, These substance abusers have a better handle on it than the people that are prescribing the drugs. I'm not surprised. Oh, it, it, yeah, it's unreal. Because some of them are easier to overcome uh, than others. Um, yeah, I mean the FDA has guidelines now of how you know what criteria you have to meet that you shouldn't be able to crush these things. And if you do crush them, that the time to peak uh, is not is not drastically changed. that the CMAX is not drastically changed? Right. Um, so they're pretty cool formulations, but but again, um, the you know the problem is that nobody really wants to pay for them. Yeah, well, and the yeah, I'm sorry. Did you, Could you just speak up? No, I would say the other thing is that you know, unless every drug is abuse deterrent, the insurance companies are going to always favor the you know the, the least expensive, the cheap, you know the cheapest, least expensive products. So of course, right. So yeah. Yeah,
0: uh, you know. Plus, it doesn't circumvent. I could still swallow ten of them at one time.
4: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. so, so, so you know, you could die in six hours instead of one hour.
0: Yeah, so obviously my favorite of your talks has got to be Maleficent, Morphine, Milligram Equivalents, and Dosing Dilemma Disasters. It's a good thing I didn't drink my lunch today. Wow, what's that all about?
4: So, yeah, I'm thinking you must love that. that I do. So, so the the reason I chose uh, uh, malfeasant is because, you know, I want to come up with a catchy title, and, um, you know, so the definition of that is like intentional – conduct that's wrongful or unlawful by Uh public officials. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is really perfect because really I think a lot of public officials have have weaponized the CDC guidelines in terms of Mm -hmm. what in milligram equivalents, And so I Mm talked about that. Um, I talked about, as you well know, um, the various flaws in doing some of these conversions. And, And I think that probably the most basic, the absolute most basic of those flaws is that Marking milligram equivalence was never intended um, to, to ascertain equivalent toxicity. Mm-hmm. It, 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 was, it was intended to have equivalence in efficacy. What is, what is the equi efficacious equivalent of these two, two drugs? Mm-hmm. So theoretically, you could have a marking equivalent to something that does it, not even an opioid. Sure. It has to do with, it has to do with efficacy. Mm-hmm. So you know, we I, I talked about that concept, um, and I talked about, of course, all the all the um, the things that could affect a marketing equivalent. The you know the genetics for one thing, uh, d- drug interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's just there's just all sorts of things. Uh, you know, uh, weight. Uh, you know, uh, disease state. Um, the way that these drugs are metabolized. I mean, so all these things are important. If, if you try to convert, for example, oxycodone to morphine or back and forth, morphine, is, as you know, does not undergo sit metabolism, mm-hmm. and oxycodone does. Right. You could, drastically, you could drastically overdose or underdose somebody based on other drugs that they're on or based on mm-hmm. their uh, their phenotype. So mm-hmm. talked a lot about that, and yeah. I, I also... I did, <laughs> You know, it was really um, interesting. I, I didn't think it was going to get such a, such a big laugh, but one of the things that drives me nuts is, is the flaws in the CDC calculator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really no, no secret. All you have to do is, is, you know, pull it up on your phone or the Internet and use it. And, and um, uh, it, I mean, it, it's dangerous, particularly with, with methadone.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
4: I pointed out that I, I did actually contact uh, CDC. I, I asked them to, to meet with them, so give these Talk about it. They never got back to me. Um, I've had people contact them on my behalf, and uh, that didn't seem to matter. So, myself and colleagues ended up publishing an, an article called Safety Concerns with the Centers. For disease control opioid calculator. Yeah, and but I'm, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear yeah.
0: that at all. <coughs> As a matter of fact, no, of practitioners often don't want to hear that. And I've had arguments on so blue in the face that they should not use the CDC equivalency guidelines to calculate doses for patients for therapeutic purposes. Right. right. Uh, no luck with that. You well, know, it, That's a wonderful presentation, I'm sure. That's uh, an avenue of great interest to me, too. And just so you all, Dr. Feuden did not sit on his rear end the rest of the week. He talked about Kratom, which, of course, we worry about liver disease, Deuces Wild, arguing the rules of the new game, and The Visible Few, an Imperfect Burden on Patients and Providers. So you were a busy, busy boy at that meeting. Let's oh, see like what it. else we have. I, I would say of the talks that I gave, one of my two favorites was, of course, opioid math calculations, conversions, titrations, and breakthroughs. That's always uh, a lot of fun. And it's been interesting for me because the second edition of my book, Demystifying Opioid Conversion Calculations, came out a year ago. And I changed the chart a little bit based on more recent data, from mostly from Dr. Akila Reddy and MD Anderson, showing when you go from IV hydromorphone to oral morphine, it's closer to 1 to 11.5. Tw- for 12, not 1 to 20, as the older guidelines have suggested. And to make the whole table work, I made the 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine equal to 25 of oral morphine, because I can show you data showing it's 10 to 20, and I can show you data saying it's 10 to 30. So I felt like I was on as firm a ground as I could get by saying 10 to 25, so that the hydromorphone conversion would work. Well, you would think that I have just stuck the world in the eye with a needle, the way people have reacted. The biggest complaint I've got is people can't divide by two and a half in their head. I was like, oh, for gosh sake. Let's call a third grader so you can do the math. But it's been very interesting over the past year, seeing people acknowledge this new data and how the new table is stronger and much uh, more accurate, but people sure do hate change. So it's interesting to see how that's evolved. And the other talk that I gave that I really like because I live this every day is the curbside consult in pain management. I'm, I'm on call for hospices, for doctors and nurses. They call me all day long for pain and symptom consult and it makes me crazy when I feel like I'm on that game show 20 questions and I live in fear that I forgot to ask the 21st question that I may be putting a patient at risk because I don't have all the information so those were probably the two, two of the favorite ones that I had done although I have to say even though she's my daughter and even though she is expecting my first grandchild I really enjoyed the heck out of debating without Dr. Alexandra McPherson does cannabis reduce opioid death and does gabapentin increase it Alex who do you think won that debate?
1: Well, I think in my first debate, I had somewhat of a leg to stand on. So in the first debate, I argued that cannabis does not, in fact, reduce opioid deaths. And what really sealed the deal for my side of the argument was a study that was recently published in the journal PNAS and contradicts a a pretty widely cited um, study that was published back in JAMA in 2014 so basically the 2014 study found that between 1999 and 2010 states that had medical cannabis laws had a nearly 25 percent lower average rate of opioid overdose deaths than states without such laws so in terms of legislation obviously a lot has changed since 2010 so currently 33 states plus dc have legalized medical marijuana and sadly during that time, the number of opioid overdose deaths was six times higher in 2017 than it was back in 1999. So the researchers at Stanford University took that and decided to replicate the original study and expanded the analysis to include data through 2017. In doing so, they actually found that the association between medical marijuana laws and opioid overdose deaths reversed. So states with medical marijuana laws had average rates of opioid overdose deaths that were nearly 23% higher than states without those laws. And that 2014 study has been cited in something like 350 scientific articles and has drawn significant public and media attention. So I think I definitely had a leg to stand on with that one, but Mm -hmm. I'll admit I had a harder time in our second debate um, in arguing that gabapentin does not increase opioid-related deaths, so I'll let you take that one away.
0: Yeah, I got you on that one. I'll, I'll grant you the, the cannabis one. But gabapentinoids have been shown to reduce minute volume. We've seen data where as monotherapy, they have increased the risk of death. And certainly when combined with other CNS depressants such as opioids, it absolutely heightens the risk. So we're kind of in a tough spot now. We shouldn't use opioids. Okay, let's use the gabapentinoids. Uh-oh, they cause an increased risk of death. The cannabis is, an, is not a safe bet. It doesn't look like that's a safe harbor. So it's a trying time for sure. And then, Alex, we really went off-road with with our presentation on you're using what for pain management, psilocybin, ecstasy, and ketamine. What did you think how, how that went?
1: And this is definitely a fun session and one I really enjoyed preparing for. And surprisingly, at least to me initially, the research is really pretty compelling. So we know that psychedelics have been used in things like religious and healing ceremonies since ancient times. but. It was really in the 1950s and 60s that these drugs attracted a lot of interest from the psych and neuroscience fields, and research really took off at that point, and there were a lot of promising results starting to emerge, Mm -hmm. but everything pretty much came to a halt in the 1970s. So a lot of this is just coming to light now with more research being done, and as we continue to deal with the opioid crisis and complex patients that we see in our worlds of hospice and palliative medicine, we're always looking for alternatives and better ways to manage our patients. And the three drugs we discussed here, psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine, are three potential options. So Mm -hmm. the data when it comes to psilocybin is really quite compelling. With regard to cancer related psychological distress, treatment resistant depression, and addiction. And we also discussed two other potential areas for you obsessive compulsive disorder and cluster
0: headaches. And then you took it away with MDMA or ecstasy. Mm-hmm which is said to be a kinder, gentler LSD. And I thought the uh, group that was in attendance was really struck by that YouTube video that we pulled up showing a partial segment of a woman who was in a therapy session under the influence of MDNA for a really traumatic situation that she'd experienced in her life. And it took three sessions, but she's a brand new kitty now. So I do agree this is very cutting edge and very interesting. So uh, stay tuned on that. And the last one you and I did, Alex, was the pre-con that was really well attended, hitting the bull- pain management using all the arrows in your quiver we did two cases the first was about pancreatic cancer where we covered the waterfront which really is an interesting um, cancer to pick because you've got somatic neuropathic um, visceral pain you've, you've got the whole gamut we were able to talk about um, interventions such as a celiac plexus block appropriate pharmacotherapy and non-drug interventions and then Alex you talked about that really awful case of the poor guy with the BKA
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time discussing difficult-to-manage pain with regard to wound care, and I was really struck by the amount of personal experience and insight people had with regard to the use of compounding pharmacies and, and different creams and solutions that were being used for wound care, so a lot of great participation on that front.
0: Absolutely. And then I know that, Jessica, you've uh, taught with Alex and I before on wound care. So back to you for one last talk. is spilled beans and hard stops. How legislation guidelines and reimbursement policies impact patient care. That sounds like a party right there. How was that session?
2: It, it was a party. Um, <laughs> so this talk actually and i 'm going to have um, Jeff chime in too, the talk was born out of a um, guest blog post that I was able to collaborate with Jeff and some other pharmacists on about what we were seeing in real life how are these How are these guidelines affecting how we 're able to take care of patients and what has happened when the guidelines got turned into laws, and then the insurance companies jumped on board with that and wanted to have their own layer of rules and prior authorizations that just slow the ability for us to care for our patients. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go go over kind of where we've been, what's been going on. And I gave the audience members a chance to just vent and share some of their struggles. And um, we, we also collaborated as a group on, you know, I shared a little bit about what we do in my practice to overcome some of this. And Mm -hmm. they were all able to also chime in and, share some, some things that they do as well to try and do the best we can for our patients when we have all of these layers of red tape that we have to cut through
0: sometimes. Mm-hmm. Tough topic to be sure. And our last participant who's joined us is Dr. Maria Foy from uh, Jefferson in uh, Philly, outside Abington. Yes, Dr. Foy?
5: Abington-Jefferson, actually, we've merged.
0: There you go. A little bit of both. (laughs) Put it all together. So you did two presentations with our buddy, Dr. Tanya Yuritsky. The first was called Better with Age. What's that about? Wine? I don't know. What is it?
5: Well, wine is better with age most of the time, unless you let it sit out too long. But no, (laughs) this was not about that. This was about pain management in our elderly patients, Mm -hmm. where we're looking at you know different kinds of pain and how... Would pain affect elderly patients differently than maybe me and you, Lynn? Because we're not so elderly yet. I'm getting there. We're 29. uh, Hey, 29, 29, baby and holding, right? (laughs) Um, So we're looking at that and looking at changes in the elderly that would maybe um, explain why we may need lower doses or we maybe get away with different medications and what we have to watch out with based on. Comorbidities that we're going to see more as we age. Mm-hmm. And we then talked about different therapies that we can use. And some of the things that we came up with that um – I feel we're, you know, our, our pointers here is we're seeing a lot more pain in our elderly patients. You know, it's highly prevalent in the older adults. Just for the fact that we're aging, our bodies are mm-hmm. wearing out. You know, we may be having more bone-on-bone arthritis. We may be mm-hmm. seeing more obesity-related pain or just people aren't moving around as much and becoming more stiffening up and things like that. But we have to really take into account the changes that are happening in our elderly. What is happening pharmacokinetically? What is happening pharmacodynamically that we have to to worry about when we're choosing what would be the appropriate therapeutic options. We have to look and see what is causing that pain. And like I said, just tailor to the best thing we can use for that patient. I am fascinated where I see some of our patients come in with broken bones. Aww. And they come in and they're over 80 into the hospital and they're getting away with a gram and Tylenol, acetaminophen, every eight hours around the clock and barely need an opioid. Wow. That just blows me away because if I broke my arm, I would think that, I would not, that, that acetaminophen is not going to be effective for me. And so we looked at different medications in the Beers criteria as, when it relates to analgesia and what would be our best choice and then we pushed a little bit more on multimodal analgesia. This mm-hmm. way you can get away with lower doses of medications and maybe eliminate
0: some of those side effects if you're only using one agent. Mm, that makes sense. How about your other one titled Doing Business or Risky Business? What's that all about? Well, that's talking
5: about using benzos in our palliative care population with opioids. So I know that a lot of time the thought process is that we're just you know it's no big deal people have severe illnesses we should be using it's no big deal if we use a benzo and an opioid what's the big deal so we looked at a lot of the evidence what is the evidence out there for some of our common conditions like dyspnea anxiety insomnia delirium nausea and vomiting and how that relates to benzodiazepine use in addition to opioids and what would be better so for example a lot of times with say anxiety we think to go to a benzo right off the bat mm-hmm. where really that's not going to give you a long term effect right. you're going to buy, you're going to build that tolerance up within a month so after a while, the benzo may not be the best choice for you and mm-hmm. using something like an SSRI or a different you know sNRI to to maybe prevent that anxiety from happening versus just treating it right then, Mm -hmm. then creating those realistic expectations with patients that we're going to use this as a bridge until your other medication kicks in, and trying to get away just from the benzo use. So for dyspnea, there's an equal amount of people that use benzodiazepines for dyspnea versus opioids. That's crazy. Even though there's not a lot of literature out there to support that, really. What you need is those opioids to decrease that work of breathing, and the Mm -hmm. only time to consider – a benzo second line would be if there's some associated anticipatory anxiety Mm -hmm. that is causing that dyspnea to to worsen. Mm -hmm. And again, for insomnia, medications are not the greatest. You get, I think, five extra minutes of sleep time, and maybe you fall asleep a little bit quicker. So insomnia, we want to use more sleep hygiene things and things like that to try to get people to sleep versus going to a pill. Now, with delirium, you know, we – Benzos can actually cause delirium. Sure. So unless patients truly at that terminal state of life, we should be using something more like haloperidol if needed or quetiapine, not going to a benzodiazepine. I know my, my cute little 94-year-old child where I gave her some clonazepam or doctor gave her some clonazepam at one point and it actually made her anxiety worse.
2: Sure. And,
5: you know, for a nausea and vomiting, we have so many more better medications that can work. Haloperidol, Lynn, that's your favorite, now my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. Olanzapine, some of the other uh, medications, on Dancitron, things like that, may work better than using a benzo for nausea and vomiting. Now, mm-hmm. again, if there's some anticipation, maybe that benzo can be added on but would not be considered first line. So yeah. the jury came out that benzo is maybe not the right thing to do, despite the fact that they're in palliative care and hospice, that we
0: should be using more evidence-based treatments. You guys are killing me. So now I can't use the opioids, I can't use the benzos, I can't use antipsychotics, and I can't use gabapentinoids. I guess we're all just going to have to think really happy thoughts. What do you think?
5: (laughs) I think so. Meditation for everyone.
0: There you go. Well, I I would. Acetaminophen for everybody. (laughs) Let's just put Tylenol in public water. What do you think? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, I would like to thank all of my guests. I was so pleased to see how well pharmacy was represented at Pain Week, particularly the members of the Society of Pain and Palliative care pharmacist I would urge everyone who's listening to this you are welcome to purchase the recordings from pain because there were so many awesome sessions going on at the same time that was the most difficult part I think they had hundred and forty hours of continuing education going on in that three or four days so I'd like to thank Dr. Jeff Feuden Dr. Jessica Geiger-Hayes Dr. Laura Meyer-Yunko Dr. Alex McPherson Dr. Maria Foy. you all have done a fabulous fabulous job and uh, I hope everyone has an awesome day so again this is Dr. Lynn McPherson This presentation is copyright 2019, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission regarding requests uh, regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.